You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. Thanks for listening in. This week we discussed 1 Samuel 1-3 through and looked at the ways that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble in Samuel. The teaching corresponds with the material covered on pages 10-25 through of the Learner Workbook, available for download at thevillagechurch.net. When I look at these three chapters that we covered today, you can't help but notice the two families who are not pitted against each other, but the contrast between them, right? So on the one hand, you have Samuel's family, who is a picture of faithfulness. I mean, apart from the one wife who is bitter and mean and ugly, (laughs) you know, on the whole, they are faithful. They are people who pray. They're people who worship regularly, who do the right things, and who are seeking after the Lord in a time when it's awfully dark in Israel. And on the other hand, you have Eli's family, who is the exact opposite, right? They do all the things that they should not do and none of the things that they should. You know, they take other people's sacrifices for themselves. You know, they treat people worthlessly. Um, They are faithless. I mean, the text even says they did not know God. And so you've got this contrast between the two. And so it doesn't take long to figure out that we are kind of at a tipping point. It's kind of the end of an era. Something's about to change. Something's got to give. And that's where we start here in this story. Now, last week we talked about where we are in their history. You know, we're right on the tail end of the end of the judges and how how was the period of the judges was it good no no it was not good it was not good now they would have brief times when god would raise up the judge and the judge would deliver them and they would kind of return to the lord in their original faith but it was not good and the thing that the text kept keeps saying over and over again it says it four times in judges is that they were without a king and they did what was right in their own eyes and they forgot the lord You know, but the problem is that they are without a king and that's where we start. But it starts kind of zoomed in on this one family, this ordinary family, really, who doesn't really seem that different from anyone else. They're just a regular family. But in their story, we see a picture of the nation as a whole. They're representative of the nation and what God is going to do. So before we start, though, with this, I want to say with Hannah's story, especially that whenever, whenever there's a group of women gathered together, then you know that at least one of us has been touched by infertility and by these same struggles that Hannah was facing. And so whether it's personally or someone you love, a dear friend, um, none of us have gone untouched by the struggles of barrenness. And by childlessness, some of us have felt that pain personally. Others have felt it for people that we love. And so I want to be sensitive to that and um, point to the hope of a God who provides, but also not to make promises that God will do for you what he has done for Hannah, because he might not. The story that he's working out in, you might be different than this. Um, so to say that Hannah's story is one of great hope and one of great faithfulness, but it's also something else. It's not just a personal story. It's a story of the people of Israel. And in her, we see 
God acting on behalf of his people to raise up a king. But it starts with this one family. And so that's where we are when we start in verse 1. There was a certain man, which by the way, I want you to give me a round of applause when I get through all these names, please. I feel like I'm going to deserve it. No guarantees that they are correct, but we're just going to go with it, okay? There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So here we are, two verses in, and we already know that she's barren. And if you think about the biblical story, she is not, like, this is not an unusual story for the Bible, right? Who are the other barren women that we know of in the Bible? Sarah, Rachel, Elizabeth. It's a common story of a barren woman and God bringing life where there was no life. And so it's it's a recurring theme that comes up in the Bible. Um, But she's barren, and that's probably why he has the second wife. Because her name is mentioned first. Scholars think that she was the first wife. He had a wife, Hannah. And then he has another wife, Panina, because of his standing in um, the culture and in the society. But given his pedigree, um, it was important for him to have an heir. And Hannah had not produced one. And so he had another wife, Panina. And Panina had many children. I mean, that's what it says. Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Okay. The things that we can know about his family is that he's probably pretty well-to-do. Because he can support the two wives, we know that. Um, Later on, because of the type of offering that Hannah brings, when, like, it's not a small offering. It's it's pretty hefty, what she brings to the temple when she um, gives Samuel. It's, It's a pretty big sacrifice that she makes. So he can support the family. He's got enough excess to give this kind of offering. And it was a large family because Panina had lots of children, apparently, from what we can tell. And so, um, obviously right from the very beginning, like this, it's already two verses in and we already see the setup between the two of them. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. And you can imagine the kind of tension that would cause in the family. Like we were talking about earlier, you know, it just never goes well when there's two wives and one of them has kids and the other one doesn't, you know, um, the Bible never, ever paints it in a positive light, this, this two-wife situation. It's never good. It is, it is not a good situation. And in this one, um, the people who heard this story originally would have known this, but their names also give us a clue to what's going on in the bigger picture. Hannah's name means favored. Panina's name means fruitful. And so their very names, like when the story was being read aloud to the original audience, their very names would have tagged them, given them an identity that plays out in the story, right? So that's kind of the setup that we get in verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. 
where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. That sounds like a lot. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. I think it's interesting that the text makes it clear. It doesn't blame it on anything else, but the Lord has closed Hannah's womb. And yet her name means favored. So she is favored by whom? Well, the text tells us that she's favored by her husband, right? He loves her. So what does he do? He gives her double what he gives. Now, how do you think that goes over? Right? So just the situation was, I mean, can you imagine? Panina knows, I'm sure, that she's not the favorite. You know, so she is well aware of her position in the family as the least favorite wife. But she has something that Hannah doesn't. She's got kids. And can you imagine? It says she has many sons and daughters. How many years Hannah had watched this happen. She had seen the whole process, especially if we assume that she was the first wife, which we don't know for sure, but we can assume that she was. So she had her own years of barrenness, and it became apparent that she wasn't going to have a child. And then her husband marries someone else. And then she watches this woman get pregnant, and she watches her belly grow the whole nine months while hers stays flat. When she gets her period month after month, she watches this play out over and over and over again. And because Panina knows that she's not the favorite one, that's the only thing she's got to hold over her head. He loves you, but I've got kids. You don't. And so you can just imagine just how horrible it was. I mean, even now, if you're struggling with infertility or barrenness, the most innocent things can send you into a tailspin, whether it's a Facebook post of another friend who is holding up their sonogram picture or a baby shower invitation. I mean, and those are simple things that are meant to be joyful occasions. So you can imagine how awful it would be if someone was on purpose trying to make you feel bad for your lack. And so the situation here is that they go up to Shiloh to worship. Which, side note, they were at Shiloh, not Jerusalem. We're associ- we usually associate Jerusalem with the temple, okay? But that temple has not been built yet. That doesn't come until Solomon's reign. And so this is where, remember, let's go back. When they were wandering in the wilderness and they had the tabernacle, they, they like, stopped traveling at Shiloh. That's where they were. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so apparently they had built some kind of structure around it. Hannah calls it a temple, but the details about that are unclear. But this is where they went to worship. The Ark of the Covenant was there. And there were different kinds of offerings that they would bring. So they would bring a sin offering to offer up for their forgiveness, for their atonement every year. But they would also bring um, praise offerings, thanksgiving offerings. And these are the ones um, that they are given back a large portion of to enjoy as a meal, as a family. So they would like celebrate their um, forgiveness. They would celebrate God's goodness to them in this kind of feast at the end of whatever festival they were there celebrating. And so there's this big family gathering. Elkanah is like portioning out their offering and giving it to everybody. And you can imagine like any family gathering, 
It might be loud. It might be kind of boisterous, especially with lots of children there. And he's given some to Panina and Panina's son and her daughter and her son and her daughter and her son. You know, he's just going on. And he gets to Hannah, and he gives her twice as much as he gives anybody else. And as the meal goes on, it's almost as if it becomes too much for Hannah to bear because it tells us that Panina used these times to just really rub it in her face. That here she is. She has so much to be thankful for. Look at, look at how God has blessed me. How's he blessed you, Hannah? What do you have? And so Hannah becomes so overwhelmed. It says in verse 6, Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. Every year they would go up and sacrifice, and every year this would happen. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. It was supposed to be a time of celebration, but she, she just couldn't. Her grief was, was too much. Bless Elkanah's heart. <laughs> and Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I mean, he tried, right? He tried to comfort her, but it was just too much for her to bear. So after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. She gets up and she leaves the table. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son... Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, what's going on here? Hannah leaves. It's too much for her to bear. And so she goes to the temple to pray because it's the only thing that she can think of to do. It's when she is in distress, she runs to the Lord, and she pours it out to him there. But the prayer that she prays, is not one that we would expect from a woman who desperately wants a child, right? She wants a child, but it tells us a little bit more about why she wants a child. It's not just for her sake, but so that she can participate in the work of the Lord, right? She wants a child. There was a deep yearning in her for more than the life that she had. She wanted it to mean more. She wanted purpose, um, and she wanted to participate in the work of God because all over Genesis, it starts with Adam and Eve. It continues on with the call of Abraham. And even after the ark with um, Noah, what command does he give the people of Israel, his people? What does God tell them? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. And Hannah can't do that. She can't be a part of it. She is a part of the people of Israel, and she can't live up to her purpose. You know, apart from raising a child in her day, she had no worth. I mean, he had to get another wife because she couldn't do this. And so her desire, while it was definitely personal, she wanted that baby. It was also more than that. She wanted to participate in the work of God and to be a part of something bigger than herself. She wanted her life to be bigger than it was because it must have seemed so small to go up year after year and to not be able to pass that on to anyone else. 
And so she wants more than what she has. She wants to be a part of the work of the Lord. And she calls out to the title that she uses here for God is Lord of hosts, Lord of the multitudes of heaven, the angel armies. It's kind of like it's got this um, fierceness to it. It's used a lot in um, wars when we're speaking of God fighting on our behalf. It's got an almighty kind of sense to it. And so she calls out to the Lord of hosts who commands angel armies. And she says, grant me this request. You are powerful over all of that. I know that you can do this for me. And if you will look on my affliction and remember me and not forget. Now, can God forget things? No, he can't. And the reason that we can tie this story to the people of Israel as a whole is because God has already looked on them. This kind of language is used in Exodus when they are slaves in Egypt and they cry out to the Lord in their plight. And it says the Lord remembered them in their distress. He heard their cries. And that's what she's calling out for. Remember me, look at me, see me, hear me. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and act. She's calling him to act because we know that the Lord doesn't forget. We know that he sees. We know that he knows, but she is calling him to act on her behalf. To give your servant a son, then I will give him back to you. If you just give me a son, Lord, he'll, he, you can have him back. Just do this for me, God. If you give me a son, I will give him right back to you. He will serve you all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I could pray that kind of prayer for a child. I mean, I pray that the Lord would keep my children. I pray that he would protect them. I pray that they would grow to know him and love him and serve him but to be desperate for a child and vow to give him back before he is ever known y'all that kind of faith that kind of promise um it's not it's not common it's not a common kind of faith and it is so much more startling to us because of the situation that she's in because of the culture that she's in. And we know that it's bad because just the next verse later in verse 12, it says, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Now, how bad do things have to be for the high priest not to recognize someone who is fervently praying? To see someone who is deeply moved in spirit, weeping before the altar of the Lord and praying and think, what's wrong with her? She must be drunk. Y'all, that is bad. For that to be his first reaction to think that she is drunk is indicative of how bad things really were at the temple. This was supposed to be a place where worship and prayer and praise was commonplace, and yet it was so out of the ordinary that the high priest didn't recognize it when it was standing right in front of him. And so Hannah says to him, no, my Lord, 
<laughs> I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So did you catch that? The favored one is asking for favor. And because names always mean something in the Bible, you know that it's about to happen. So what's the difference between the two versions of Hannah that we see here in when she enters the temple and when she leaves? How, how is she when she enters? Broken. Yeah. I mean, just heartbroken. All the years, the years after, like they have just worn her down and she is low, low, low. What about when she leaves? She's hopeful. She doesn't know if God's going to answer her prayer or not. You know, she has the blessing of the high priest who says, may God grant the petition that you have asked for. Let it be so. But she doesn't know yet if that's going to happen. The only thing that has changed is that she's poured it out to the Lord and she has left it there at his feet. And she's at peace when she leaves there. It says her face is no longer sad. She trusts him with her heart. She doesn't pour it out and then pick it back up again, <laughs> carry that misery with her away from the temple because we do like to do that sometimes, right? <laughs> no, she pours out all that sorrow and all that heartbreak and all that desperation before the Lord and she leaves it there with him, not knowing what he's going to do yet, but trusting that he will do something with it. She leaves it there. Her face was no longer sad. Says they rose early in the morning and worshiped again before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Can you imagine? Three, two to three years, she nursed him, kept him with her, had her under her care. And then she took him and she left him in Shiloh, which what is Shiloh like? Is it a place that you would leave your child alone after what you have read in chapter 2? Would you leave your child there unattended? She knows what it's like. And one of the questions in the homework was about, you know, why do you think it repeats it? The people who heard this originally would have known that a child is weaned at three years old. So why would it go back in verse 24 and tell us again the child was young? It's because... It wants us to feel this tension. 
It wants us to feel what it must have been like for her to leave her young child, her very young child, in Shiloh there because he is young, because he is still little bitty. I mean, y'all, three years old, that's a baby. I mean, that is... You know, like, it's a struggle for some of us to get our kids potty trained by that time so they can go to preschool, you know? Like, a three-year-old is so tiny, so young, so innocent, and yet she keeps her vow. She does what she said she would do. She, she has promised that she would give the child back to the Lord, and so that's exactly what she does. Her husband could have vetoed her on it, but he didn't. He backed her up. They both kept the vow. They both stood with it, and when the time was right, she went. She didn't just come and bring the son. She also brings this offering with her, a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And if you look back in Leviticus at what was required for the sacrifices, it was not that much. A much smaller animal would have been sufficient. It said that she brought three times as much flour. Is it flour? Grain? Flour, yes. As much flour as necessary. And so the largeness of the sacrifice is meant to show us how grateful she is for what the Lord has done for her. She brings all of this there, and she is just so grateful in her heart that God has seen her and heard her. And she, <laughs> she still is trusting in him, even though she doesn't know what's going to happen to her very young child in this very wicked place. She has no idea what's going to happen, but she does know the kind of people who are there. You can guarantee that that mama knew what kind of people she was leaving her baby with. But her trust for the Lord was bigger than the fears. She trusted him to keep Samuel and to do with him what he would through that time. It says, they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence three years ago. I'm the one you thought was drunk praying for a child, begging for a child. For this child, I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. How many nursery walls is that written on? What about the next verse? Does anybody write the next verse on their nursery walls? (laughs) Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. No, we don't put that one on the walls. We will keep that child to ourselves, right? (laughs) Some days you can have this kid. I mean, not to make light of it. However, it's maybe just a little bit out of context. (laughs) Maybe, perhaps, you know. um, Y'all, what's happening here in this verse, for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. It's a play on words. In the original language, the word for um, asking and petitioning is the same thing. The Lord has granted me the asking that I asked of him and then the same same exact word is used for lending in the next verse the Lord has granted me the asking that I asked of him therefore I have same word asked him to the Lord as long as he lives he has asked to the Lord I mean I know it doesn't make sense in our translation but the same word and there so the word is saw all 
So maybe in their language. For this child, I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my saw all that I saw all to him. Therefore, I have saw all to him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he has saw all to the Lord. So God saw all to him to me. I'm saw alling him back to the Lord. And it's the same language that Eli used up in the previous verses where he gave her that blessing in verse um, 17. Go in peace. May the Lord of Israel grant you your saw all that you have saw all to him. And so she comes back to him and she says, the Lord has granted me my saw all that I saw all. It's repeating and there's this play on words. And if you, it's not the same exact word, but it sounds awfully similar to another word that's going to come up later on in the book of Samuel. The saw all, Saul is going to be the product of another asking from the people of Israel. But their asking is not the same as Hannah's asking. Their asking was selfish. And we'll see that contrast as it played out how one saw all came about and the other one did. So it's kind of foreshadowing and pointing to that. So... Then, y'all, we enter this beautiful section of Hannah's prayer. Did y'all love that? Um, whew, y'all. What are some of the names of God that stood out to you? It, it told us to, um, I think, what page is it on? 23 is the whole text of this prayer. To go through, to write down the qualities, the attributes of God that you see in this passage. So, um, I know that there are a ton of them. Like, it is full of attributes of God. What's the one that stood out the most to you? Anyone? Compassionate. Mm-hmm. Man, and hasn't he shown her compassion? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so what we're going to do, I'll read through this, and we'll name some of them, and I wish we could, like, we could spend forever just talking about this passage like it, we, we could spend the whole of our time working on that I think but um, we don't really have time to we, we have to carry on to the bad parts of Eli's son so we will um, go over this and, and talk about the attributes of God but y'all what is stunning about this is that you can't prayer or pray a prayer like this unless you know God intimately and that she would know him so intimately with the state of things that they are in Israel is phenomenal. This is a prayer born out of deep intimacy with God. She knows him. And it is less about her and what she wants and what she needs than it is about him and who he is. So let's start in verse 1. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. He sees me. He knows me. He's gracious to me, right? My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. He saves. There is none holy like the Lord. He's holy. He is transcendent. He is set apart. There's no one like him. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. What does that make you think of? Rock. Firm. Unchangeable. Immutable, unmoving, strong, strong. Mm-hmm. good foundation. There is no rock like our God. 
Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Who do you think she's talking about there? The other. <laughs> the other woman. You have no more reason to boast over me. Thank you very much because, not because I'm better, but because the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. He is omniscient. He is wise. By him actions are weighed. He is just. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble thine own strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. He's a provider. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. He does the unexpected. He flips things on its head. That's not really a, I don't know how, but God works in unexpected ways. He, as our title tells us this week, opposes the proud and exalts the humble. That's what he does. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He is sovereign. He is the giver of life. She knows that he's in control of her life because he has brought life to what was once dead inside of her. He has brought life to her barren womb. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He is a compassionate deliverer. He sees. He knows. To make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He is the creator. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful over even the earth itself. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. He is a safe harbor. He is a protector. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. He's a jealous God and mighty. Like he is more than able to back up what he says he will. And he will not share his honor with another. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He is just. He is generous. He will give strength. He Um, will enable he does all of these things y'all god is good and hannah knows it but her prayer is less about what he has done for her and who he is now she knows that this these things are true because they he has shown himself to be all of these things in her life but this song of praise comes out from her um and that's exactly what it is it's about god and what it, it does for the book of samuel is it serves as Almost a prophetic word over the things that are to come. The lifting up and the breaking down. He will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his salvation. All of these things are going to come to pass over and over again in the coming pages. And what we see here is that it's not about Israel at all. It's about the God of Israel. And it's about what he is doing in history at this point in time. And what is he doing? He's rescuing and he's redeeming his people. He is seeing them in their plight like he saw Hannah. And he is acting on their behalf in the same way that he acts for her individually. Now, you can't read this, I don't think, from this side of the cross and not also think of Mary's prayer right? The Magnificat. It is an echo of this one. 
because God acts in that time way back then before Jesus came. But it was just a shadow of the things that were to ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. So even then, long before Jesus came, we know that he is the ultimate fulfillment to this. Because Mary uses these words almost exactly in her prayer when Gabriel visits her and tells her that she's going to bear another child. One who will be a Messiah and rescue his people from the situation that they find themselves in. And so all of this um, is pointing to Jesus. Even then, we see um, that God is not so different in the Old Testament. He is the same then as he is now. And he acted on behalf of his people then, just as he does now. It's just the situation was a little different at the time. So Hannah, man, y'all, we could spend all night there, but, but we've got to move on to the terrible, wicked sons, um, which is not fun, not fun part of this week's message at all, but we've got to get there. Okay, so it says in verse 11, Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now, what we're going to see in, in the, the, these coming verses is kind of goes back and forth and back and forth. We get these little snippets about Samuel, right? Samuel was ministering to Eli. This is how things were with Eli's family. But Samuel was growing. This is what else was happening with Eli. But Samuel was in the presence of the Lord. Here's this terrible, horrible prophecy against Eli. Samuel was in the presence of the Lord. And so it goes back and forth and back and forth between the two of them. This is the first of those references. The boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. What's that make you think of when you hear, like, do you, would you say that about anybody? I mean, I feel like those are pretty strong words, even though, I mean, like you, you just don't tell somebody they're worthless right? You're worthless. Like those are fighting words, right? I mean, there are worse things you could say for sure, but for the Bible to say that somebody is worthless, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Um, some of the translations, like I looked it up in different ones. Well, why don't you tell me, does your verse, does your version say anything different? Verse 12, verse 12 chapter two, I verse 12. They were, corrupt. they were corrupt. That's nice. scoundrels they were scoundrels that makes you think of a pirate right (laughs) I mean Captain Jack Sparrow coming at you right okay what else any other ones and now these says wicked the message said they were a bad lot that's also kind of weak I think Um, New Century said that they were evil men so these let's, let's just be clear um, they were the high priestly family, and that is something that was carried on down through the generations. Like the first high priest was, it's not a trick question, who was the first high priest? Aaron. Say it louder. You got it. Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. And then the high priesthood was to go down through his family to his descendants. So Eli and Eli's sons were the current high priest and then assuming one of them, one of these worthless scoundrels, was going to be the next high priest. And I don't know about you, but like when I'm choosing a church or trying to figure out where to go, I'm not going to go to the one 
where there's a worthless person in charge. I mean, are you? Is that what you're looking for in a church home? No. Y'all, these were supposed to be... Their position was one that was supposed to lead people into the presence of the Lord to serve as kind of mediators between God and men. But they were like, not only did they not do their job, it says in the end of that verse that they did not know the Lord. They did not know him. Not only were they bad at their job, but they didn't even know who God was. Guys, that's not good. The NET, which she had us look up some other verses in that, but I looked it up here too. It says they did not recognize the Lord's authority. And in the end, that's going to be their undoing, is that they didn't recognize his own authority. So let's read on, and then we'll talk about what's going on here. It says, The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Which, by the way, it was customary and there were provisions made for the priests to eat from the meat that had been sacrificed. But there were also rules about what they could have and when they could have it. What's happening is that Hophni and Phinehas were kind of just taking whatever they wanted, even that which belonged to the Lord. And so that's where we get to in this verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, which that portion belonged to the Lord, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Okay. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So what's going on here? Is this just about the cut of meat that they get? I mean, does it really matter? That's right. They did not want what was rightfully theirs. They wanted more. They wanted what belonged to the Lord. And y'all, it's so bad because they were supposed to be the ones who were kind of um, mediating this kind of sacrifice, making sure that it was done right so that the people who were offering it were given atonement and forgiveness for that year. But they were not only like, like they were interfering with people who were trying to seek forgiveness. They were coming in between people and the Lord instead of helping them get there. They were saying, oh, nope, I'll take that. That's for me. Thank you very much. They were taking what belonged to God. They were taking what was reserved to God, honoring their own wishes and desires over and above the authority of the Lord. It'd be like if we pass the offering plate around and then like you just walked up to it at the end of the service and you're like, I'll take that. Thanks. Shove it in your purse. You don't need that. Yeah. And so it's really bad because their whole job was to make it easier for people to approach the Lord. But they made it harder. They pushed people away. They kept people from performing their religious duty. They blatantly abused their power. I mean, it says point blank. If you don't give it to me, I'll take it from you like a bully. 
was shoving a kid down and taking his lunch money. I mean, that's not what it's supposed to be like when people come to worship. It should not be that way in the church. But they were taking. They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. But Samuel, verse 18, was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Things are bad. They're real bad. But they're Samuel. So you get this um, note of hopefulness in there. It's bad. But there's this kid. There's this kid. And you just know something's going to change. You're just waiting for the change to happen, right? He's even wearing priestly garments, probably before you're supposed to, because they did everything wrong. So why not put a kid in the priestly garments? Why not? Let's just go ahead and do that. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. Again, for the asking that she asked. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. That's a lot of kids for a woman who was once barren. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Okay. Now we're going to go back to the worthless scoundrel sons. Samuel's a good one, but these are not so good. Now Eli was very old. This is verse 22. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, y'all, I think sometimes we read verses like this and we just kind of skim over it. Like it's just one little verse. Um, but let's, let's take a minute and think about what exactly that means. So these two sons, their father is the high priest. He's like the top dog in Shiloh. They're the sons. One of them is going to be the next high priest. So we can assume that they have a great deal of power and authority, that they kind of rule the roost over what's going on. So these women would come to the temple, and it's not as if it was a consensual thing that was happening here. It's an abuse of their authority and their power. They're using their positions to get sex, to demand it. And especially in the way things are in our culture right now <laughs> with um, all the sexual abuse and everything, like, it's easy for us to imagine, it's far too easy for us to imagine this situation, right? Because it's not a new one. It's not a new one at all. But it is entirely unacceptable in the men of God. It is not okay. It has never been okay. And we know it's not okay, and we know it's never been okay because of the way that God reacts. Thank goodness, Right? Um, God's not okay with it either, but we haven't gotten to that point either. So Eli's like, hey, I've heard this. I keep hearing this. It's not just one tale. It's many tales. And so it was well known what his sons were like and what they were doing. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. That should make you think of Jesus, right? And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God and man. Yeah. Okay, but let's back up one verse. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. How does that make you feel? Does that give you the warm fuzzies? <laughs> He's done. And if, 
I think verses like this, um, we, we don't like them. You know, they're difficult. It's uncomfortable, especially um, because we say things like, it's never too late for you to turn to God. There is a nugget of truth in that. However, um, the testimony of Scripture is that sometimes it is too late. And you see it with Pharaoh, and he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, and eventually God hardened it the rest of the way for him. You know, you, we saw it when we talked about John, how the Jews um, had so rebelled against God for so long and refused to hear truth on their own for so long that God closed up their ears so that they could not believe Jesus even if they wanted to. It says that in John, and that's uncomfortable, right? And that's where we are here, that it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Y'all, this is terrifying, because how bad do you have to be for God to want to do that to you? Like, how bad? But let's be clear that it was their own doing. God opposes those who are opposed to him. It is not as if they were faultless. In this, it is not as if they were without, um, without, what am I trying to say? It's not as if they were innocent. They were not innocent. We have seen that they are not. Worse than that, um, though, worse, worse than the things that they did is that they, they refused to submit to and abide by his authority. And at the end of the day, if you will not submit to the Lord, then you will face his judgment. That's all there is to it. They strutted around that temple, taking things from people, doing whatever they wanted, as if they ruled the place, as if it was their right to rule the place. But it was not. And God had had enough. That's where we are in verse 27. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? That's Aaron that he's talking about, the first high priest. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Y'all, Eli's sons were the worthless ones, but Eli is the one who gets this message. He was complicit in their actions. He did nothing to stop it. He did not stop them. He, he rebuked them. He said, don't do that. But he didn't do anything to stop it from happening. And because he did nothing... He is also held accountable. It says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart. I'm only saving one of you so he can cry about how bad it is. Y'all, that's that's tough. And all the descendants of your hearts of your house shall die by the sword of men. 
And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. So now we're waiting for that, right? He's told us it's going to happen. We're waiting for those two worthless priests to die. All of this stuff that's going on with Eli and his household is a very, very harsh reminder to us that no one is above the law. No one stands above the condemnation of the law. No one is excused from it. Even the high priest will be held accountable for his actions. No one is free from the judgment of God. All will be held to account. On this side of the cross, we rely on the blood of Jesus. Those who are in Christ, we know, are saved from that judgment. But those who refuse to submit to the authority of the Lord, to bow before him, to call him Lord, um, will be held accountable. And there's a point at which he will hold you to account. He doesn't take lightly the trespasses of those who ought to know better, right? Like, to whom much is given, much is required. He requires so much from us. Um, But repeated rebellion, this isn't just like one little offense. You know, willful disobedience and a complete disregard for his authority, he's not going to ignore that. You know, God is going to punish that every time. He says it, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. But all the good news is that the reverse of that is true. He honors those who honor him. But, whoo, whoa, woe is me. That's what they should be saying. Because if you don't honor him, you better look out. You better look out. The greatest sin then and now, I mean, it's not the sexual promiscuity. It's not anything else that you might see in our world. It's not murder. It's, it's not, those things are bad. I'm not saying they're not bad, but the greatest of the sins, those are only an indication of what's really going on in a heart that refuses to submit to the Lord. The true sin, the underlying sin that plagues most people who struggle and who have that lifestyle of rebellion is the unwillingness to give up the authority to the Lord and to submit to his rule in their life. Hophni and Phinehas didn't want to do that and they paid for it. So did Eli. But y'all, that's, Praise be to God, not the end of the story. It says, verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. You can see even Hannah's prayer is already starting to come to fruition. Those who were hungry shall be full. Those who are full shall, what are the words that it gives? Um, Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. And that's, her words are already starting to come to pass here. Y'all, it says that the Lord will raise up a faithful priest immediately in in history, I guess, that is fulfilled um, by Zadok in 1 Kings chapter 2 is when he takes on the role, but ultimately when is it fulfilled? Who is the faithful high priest? It's not a trick question. Jesus. Jesus. That's right. Jesus. 
And in the homework, there was a passage for us to read in Hebrews that is just so beautiful about Jesus, our forever high priest. It's in Hebrews chapter 7. Let me get there. I'll read it real quickly, and then we'll move on to chapter 3. It says, starting in verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. How different is that from Eli and his sons? So different. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And the biggest difference between Jesus and those sons, those priests, is they took. They took and they took and they took and they took, but what did Jesus do? He gave. He became the sacrifice, but they took from it. And so he becomes the high priest who takes on the sins of the world, who is perfect and flawless, above reproach in every way. He is what we really need. What's happening here is the precursor to all of that. In chapter 3, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we'll talk about what is happening here. At the beginning, we see this picture. It says, Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So there's the series of contrasts here between Samuel and Eli. The word of the Lord was rare. That's the stage. But the lamp had not yet gone out. The lamp of God is still lit. It's dark. The days are so dark, and the light might be dim, but it is not out. And it is in this situation that the Lord speaks. And he calls to Samuel, and Samuel doesn't recognize his voice. And then he calls to Samuel, he doesn't recognize his voice. And why? Why is it like that? Well, it tells us that in verse 7, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. No, it didn't mean that he didn't know God at all, only that God had never revealed himself to him in this way before. He's never done that to me. I mean, I don't know what I would do if I all of a sudden heard the voice of the Lord calling out to me. So Samuel was confused, but we see here that he is learning to recognize the voice of the Lord. He is coming into a new position where he's the one who receives the word of the Lord. And what's the word that he gets? What kind of word does he get in verses 10 through 14? Is it a good word? No, no it's basically a repetition of the prophet's words in chapter 2, right? Eli's house is going down. That's the gist of it. Eli's going down. Now tell him. How do you think that must have felt for Samuel? Would you have liked to be the one? No. No. Um, Not good news. It had to be awkward to say the least. And yet, it was a test of sorts. Because if you know anything about the rest of Samuel's story, he had to do a lot of hard things. And he had to say a lot of hard truths in his ministry. This was just the first. But he comes out. Eli demands that he tell him, tell me what he said. 
and Samuel does. And you can see Eli just accepting it. You know, he is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That's Eli's response. Now, I'm not sure that's how I would respond if somebody told me that about my family, but that is Eli's response. And what happens after that? And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's from top to bottom, the whole country, all of it, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Y'all, it's the end of an era here. And these three chapters is the beginning of the end for Eli and his family. And it is the beginning of the beginning for this new age that's to come in the time of Israel. You know, Samuel is the kingmaker. Something different is about to happen. Um... And we know that from this point forward, things are going to be different. Why? Because the word of the Lord has returned to Israel. It's there, y'all. And the word of the Lord never fails. It always, always prevails. There would come another day in Israel, another time, when the word of the Lord was scarce and there was no king on Israel's throne. And God would raise up his own son, the incarnate word to usher in and inaugurate his kingdom forever. What's that verse in John 1? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. That, ultimately, that's what this is pointing to. That's what it's leading to is that time when that word would come. And we are so fortunate, y'all. Where does it leave us? Well, We have the word, you know, Samuel did not have a Bible. (laughs) He did not have this. We have the word of the Lord. And yet sometimes it seems so scarce in our culture, um, in the world that we live in. And so I think for us, um, we would do well to consider its place in our lives um, and, and to think about, to wonder um, whether or not we who have been given this gift um, of the full revelation of scripture not just this written word but Jesus Christ the word in the flesh we have that um, are we oblivious to its power in our midst have we lost our wonder over it do we take it for granted are we so used to it that we rob it and strip it of the power that it has to transform and to change and how would the world be different how would our homes be different our churches our communities our world our country all of it how would it be different if it went from a place and a time where the word was scarce to a place where it was abundant how would that change things we are a people I think I mean everywhere you look that just people who are desperate for truth but there's only one place that it can be found and so we have to stand for the word we have to know it so that it can go forth from here that's our job that's what we've been called to do as believers to do that so the other thing um, the other place I think that it leaves us is to consider 
which family we resemble. Are we like Hannah and her family, faithful, humble, submissive to the Lord? Or are we more prone to rebel against the Lord to, I mean, I should hope that none of us are like that in the way that Eli's family was. Um, But I think all of us can probably struggle with the pride with putting our own wants and desires above the will of the Lord sometimes. Um, and so to, just to do a heart check and say, where am I with this? Is this my pride? Am I showing the same humility that is necessary for, for the people of God? Or am I just looking out for myself? Which one is it? I hope that um, for all of us, it would be more on the humility side than the proud side more on the um, word of the Lord than not the word of the Lord. Um, and we will pray for one another for, for that to be true. Let, let's hope that that's the case. Let's pray for that to be the case. And let's, you know, if you're feeling convicted, then do something. <laughs> make it the case. Pray. Um, make the changes. Do what's necessary to rearrange the current order of things <laughs> so that they point to Jesus always, so that they point to Jesus.